Hi, this is Sharing Air, the podcast that brings arts, humanities, social sciences, and the medical sciences together. I'm Laurieann Farrell, the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Claremont Graduate University and the co-host of this podcast. And I am Andy Vasco, Laurieann Farrell's friend, and also Associate Provost of Transdisciplinary Studies and Director of the program at Claremont Graduate University. And think about that, Andy. You know, for, for four or five weeks, we've been in this stressy situation, and we're still friends. We're still able to offer each other support. Uh, I have a feeling that might be something that comes up in discussion later today. Um, thank gosh. We're doing a good job of it. We are. And we're doing all this without actually being able to see each other. So this truly is a communion of voices, uh, and it's exciting to do. Um, before we... Uh, sort of talk about what we're going to talk about this week. I want to go back to last week because that was was some podcast. Um, as I was saying at the end of the podcast, which I'm sure our guests were really glad we didn't do, I think we could have stayed on another four or five hours. Now, this week's guest is now quailing and deciding he needs to actually go to, to leave somewhere. You know, We will not do that. But um, but it was a lot of fun. We felt I felt like we finished in mid-conversation that we could have gone on forever. And the, the interesting about that conversation, I think, uh, which actually centered around uh, the work of, of medical personnel uh, in the emergency rooms and especially with issues of, of respiratory distress and, and the kinds of illnesses that COVID is bringing on. Um, in the middle of all this, instead of just talking about you know, lungs or, or the virus, which of course we can barely quit talking about, we got to some actually some really m- sort of more, um, I think, humane qualities of, of medical delivery, medical care delivery. And that was a word that one of our, um, one of our guests, Abdullah, said was um, entrustability. And entrustability was a word I had not come across before. And it's, it, it, it itself, it even sounds like what it means. It sounds soothing. It has a lovely kind of scan. And um, so what did you think about all, did you think, like, have you been thinking about entrustability for a week as I have been trying to figure out if I'm entrustable or not? Well, I thought of it in a kind of comical way in the announcement yesterday that that you know some research had come out, and I think it had had been out a little bit before we had, we had heard the, the the press briefing from President Trump that there there's sensitivity to UV radiation and heat um, for the coronavirus, which they had that idea for a little while, and they certainly had suspected because other coronaviruses have that, um, but. Then there were some comments made like you should try exposing yourself to UV radiation or you should you should do some some otherwise unhealthy activities um, related to this finding that became the, the prescription from the president. And then there was a whole group of people around him. They're like, he doesn't really mean that. What he actually meant to say was and then to fix it. And so I was imagining the word entrustability there where the group around the president must think like, I, I have to be on guard at all times. I can't trust that he's going to say something that I'm going to agree with. And that there's a group of people that are completely entrusting uh, these words coming from their their influencer of choice or their leader of choice. So I, I chuckled about it. I'm like, this is not a good example of entrustability. It's exactly what you don't want to have happen. You oh, want God, to be it's like, yeah, it's the, the kind of like where you're laughing until you break down in tears. And, yeah, <laughs> you know, right. and I realized that actually in our discussion last week, because it was on such a high and wonderful plane with people who actually knew what they were talking about. And we're very careful not to promise things or give final answers where, you know, we kept talking about this kind of situation as a, as a medical, a, a medical uh, uh, episode in, 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 um, in progress. We have no idea yet. So how does that actually, in some ways, um, affect the way we put trust in medical personnel to deal with us anyway? And when you think about it, 
in a in a in a kind of I mean, sad way, here's a president sort of sort of grasping for entrustability, which he feels is associated with certainty, like being able to say something that is certain that will make people feel better. That's 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 giving a lot of credit to that. But one of the things that Abdullah did not talk about was a, an opposite quality called distrustability, right? You know, oh, and, yeah. and to think that distrustability would be actually tied up in a version of unknowing, right? A, 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 a kind of a humility and intelligence to say, we just don't know yet. The, the term interestability also, you can go from this very political space or where it could be structural and it could seem rather cold, but it's also very warm at the same time. And the history of that word in medical education is, is worth noting here that um, for a while, and we've seen this around education, there's this idea called competency-based education where people can have competence in something. And if you can measure their competence, you don't have to measure their content knowledge. And so people who've come in with life experience, that might be something that demonstrates competence. As long as they could demonstrate it, it means that they have passed a certain level and they can move onward and upward. And so the health sciences had taken this for a bit and said, like, let's, let's, let's see if we can incorporate competency-based education into what we're doing. Uh, let's say, are you competent at taking a blood pressure? Are you competent at taking a patient history? Are you competent, competent, competent? And then it kind of got translated to, translation, we're coming back to it, translated to- I thought you were going to get to that. Yeah, we, never, we, will, we will never put that to rest. Nah. Translated to things that were like cultural competencies. And that got a lot grayer because what does it mean to be- culturally competent. You, Ask you, any kid at the a, prom and you'll find out it doesn't. We have no idea what that means. You, you, and, and so we started to be critical and for very good reason of this concept of what, of what competence was. And there was a, a scholar in medical education coming out of the Netherlands, I think, Ali Tenkati, who, who tried unpacking what we mean by the word competence in a healthcare setting. And that what we mean by that is entrustability which is what I think um, the poem last week from Emergency Room really captured. Yes. Of, it was the feeling of entrustability. It was, it was like the right word. He picked the right word. And so instead of competencies now, we look at um, entrustable activities as a way to test whether or not someone's ready to move on to their residency and if from their residency into practice in, in medicine. And that's been adopted by a lot of other health health science professional fields as well. So that we're looking, do, do you, does your peer group trust you to do a good job in this? Which is essentially what we've been doing on the the, the liberal arts side of graduate education I for was hoping a while. you'd get around to that, right? Yeah. Because part of that's that's basically if what we're doing is, you know, in some sense, you know, modeling critical discourse, right? That is actually begins in a state of entrustability. Yeah, that's that's so. The, it's something that the professional education borrowed from the liberal education, and I think it it is beautifully illustrated with this concept of entrustability. So it's it's soft and it's and it's and it's cold at the same time. Like it's got both sides of that of that continuum. I guess it'd be hot and cold, not soft and cold. Because it's like ice cream, right? I, I want <laughs> ice cream hungry. right now. Like Lillian, we need I snacks. Am. We need. I know you are, um, and I and 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 I feel that because I haven't had any ice cream in weeks now. Um, and um, <laughs> let's not get off on that. Um, but 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 it makes me sad to think of the things I don't have in my freezer. What I have in my freezer are the usual healthy foods that I thought I should stock up on, which I'm now thoroughly sick of. Um, and I want ice cream. I want ice cream for dinner. I'll have to think about that. I broke as, down as and got 
with my Instacart order from Sprouts, 15 large chocolate bars this last order, in addition to everything else I got, because I have been tearing up my apartment looking for things I can eat um, as comfort foods. Because uh, I did the same thing as you, thinking this is my opportunity to be healthy, which I generally am not ashamed of how I eat. I, pre- I eat pretty healthy. I know you have these like bowls full of vegetables every time I see you. Yeah. Um, you know, which was a very long time ago. And now that I know you've got all those chocolate <laughs> bars, I'm trying to figure out if I can get like within six feet of your house and you can just throw one out the window. That'd I be you know what? If you drive by, if you drive by, I'll toss them into your car. <laughs> drive window. by chocolate, the new the new concept. But think about you know like 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 chocolate bars flying through the air to help us um, and. Um, just actually to get back to our sense of the air, right? We, we actually use, we have been able to translate sort of the use of air in so many interesting ways since we started this podcast. And you always have these kind of great ideas for how we should shape, um, you know, how we should shape the way we think about our next podcast conversation in whole, right? And so this, you know, this, okay, so listening audience, um, Andy thinks of all the good stuff. And, 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 and it's my job to try to figure out what in the heck he means. And he said yesterday, I think we should talk about parachuting, uh, which as the daughter of a Navy fighter pilot, I thought sounded like we were all going to, you know, like, you know, just jump out of this situation altogether and get out of here. Um, but it ended up being, you know, I think actually, Andy, you made a really compelling case for thinking about parachuting as an, a good lead in to our conversation with our guest. Um, and But it was a conversation that started and between us yesterday in discussing this. Yes, folks, we actually prepared this conversation um, to a certain degree. Um, to a certain you degree. Were thinking, yeah, to a certain degree. You were thinking about parachuting in one fashion, which was far safer than the way I was thinking about it. Well, I'm really glad we had our conversation yesterday, and we will enlighten people to, to where we're going with this in a second. But it, it was sparked by someone I follow on Twitter, who's named uh, Yanir Baryam, who is a complex, a complexity scientist who started off as a physicist. And transdisciplinary folks love complexity science because that's why you do transdisciplinary work, because something is complex at the center of it. And he has devoted his entire career right now to ending coronavirus now. And he was an early critic of the the world's response to this and not looking at it as a complex system. So most of what he has to say, I can't say all of what he has to say, but most of what he has to say, I see myself agreeing with. And he had put up an analogy the other day on his Twitter feed that said, um, thinking that the curve is flattening, we can start lifting restrictions now, is equivalent to saying the parachute has slowed our descent, we can take it off now. And after I read that, I started to think of metaphors and the difference between how we picture what we're going through, if we're going through a fall or if we're going through bracing for an impact, or if this is something that's like a car accident, if this is something that's falling on the sky on top of us. And I love the ideas of metaphor. I think they capture complex things really, really well. So the parachute got stuck in my mind and we talk about air all the time. And I then came across another article that was entitled from LA Magazine this last week, written by Jeff Weiss. If ever there was a city to finesse a catastrophe, it's Los Angeles. And the concept of finessing, to me, in my mind, the images of a cat that fell but made it look like it didn't fall. You know, it landed on all of its feet and feet and made it. That's look the like thing it was I hate totally about cats. I wish they just fall. Um, yeah, I'm allergic to them. <laughs> well, if you watch enough, I don't if you watch share enough YouTube videos. If, no, they don't. They don't really share air with anybody. Um, they share hairballs with with people, uh, <laughs> but they do fall really with this lovely finesse. And so this this idea of falling, this idea finessing a of catastrophe, f- 
finessing. I mean, and, and the role of of how a parachute is quite lovely when it's when it's coming down from the sky. When you see it from from my point of view, I I, I have never been brave enough to jump from a plane. And then our guest today, just to give people a heads up, is going to be uh, Professor Jason Siegel. Uh, he is a social psychologist from and health psychologist from CGU. Um, I was looking through his his Google Scholar, and his most cited paper was entitled "The Effect of Informal Social Support: Face to Face versus Computer Mediated Communication," which, of course, is really relevant for everything we're going through now. And they used this metaphor, and they, they examined a metaphor of friends as buffers. So Lorianne and I started talking about parachutes, and I said, "Well, parachutes kind of a buffer." And then you did this thing I haven't seen you do before, in the middle Disagree of talking to me. <laughs> yeah, well, in the middle of talking to me, because we can do that on Zoom, even though this we're doing just with our voices. You started nodding your head. You tried not being violent about it, nodding it no, but you couldn't help it. And so I could see non-verbally you clearly don't agree with me, and it made me stop for a second and really listen to what you were saying. And you're, I think you're a hundred percent right. And well, that- I think that, <laughs> I think that the way that we choose the metaphor, you won that, you won that round, Farrell. I did it. And it's a good um, thing you don't see me today because I've got the big neck brace on after doing that with my head. Uh, <laughs> I'm teasing you. <laughs> you How would you know? Nobody no, will ever know what I've got around my neck. Well, I, my hands are starting to get tired from gesticulating to myself so much and while I'm staring at my own microphone. Um, but I, I think that our metaphors are mixed. They are because a parachute. About this, that's right. A parachute. I mean, I, I definitely think that there's room in the world for for your. It's probably there's probably some kind of interesting enneagram that can explain you know why you would think of it that way, and I would see it more as not so much a buffer, but as as something which contains air, which we might or might not trust. It might get tangled in a tree. It might not work. Um, and it doesn't actually protect us when we land um, in a certain way. It keeps us from landing so hard that our entire body is shattered into pieces. But it only allows us to then actually be in charge of how we manage to get our feet back on the ground, right? So people who have to learn to do this for a living, I understand this only from people who have to do this for a living. You will never find me jumping out of a plane, ever. I, I don't even like getting on a plane. Um they have to learn how to kind of hit the ground in a certain kind of way and roll so they don't actually just shatter their 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 ankles and their their legs and everything else above that if they're not careful. And so the way this conversation went, I thought was it kind of veered back and forth between a parachute representing, you know, re- representing um, something that helps us and is 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 safe, right? Or something that will that should actually be the equivalent of staying safe in these hard times, which is what that what that little uh, meme that you were talking about was actually, or that you know, uh, that Instagram thing was saying, or something which, if you if you unpacked it, and let's hope we don't have to unpack a parachute today, um, that you ended up seeing that it, it is uh, it is not promising any kind of easy. It's not it's not promising that you know that. That, that the curve will be flat when we, that permanently, it, it is promising only that one can harness the air for a little bit and then um, possibly figure out what to do as one approaches ground level. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it got back to kind of our discussions from the very beginning and, you know, this may, I don't think this is stretching it too much. I don't. We have talked about air as this kind of unstable category 
we talk about sharing it, that that's now, you know, that we call the sharing error for a very specific reason that it's actually a little bit scary to share error right now. It's also absolutely necessary to us. I would suspect that the parachutist uh, who's just getting ready to pull the ripcord is really hoping that they can trust the air at least to catch the parachute silk and bring them down. Um, and I think we can all agree that that just because the parachute seems to be working, that's not the time to decide we can discard it if we're not on the ground yet. Um, but I think it, it also reminds us that um, we trust air. Errors and trustability is a little bit of a difficult uh, concept, I think. I'm not sure what I think about it when I look out and see, um, you know, basically everybody in Claremont wearing fashionably questionable masks today. I'm not, I'm not pleased with anybody's fashion choices outside so far. And I'm supposed to be just glad they're wearing them, but we're, we're not trusting, right. we're not, we're not treating the error as if we can be trusted, right? It's actually protecting other people from us. Bringing in air changes the, the need for agency when we're each going through our own descents or stressors or whatever, or whatever we're, we're going to codify that, that idea as. So if, if, for instance, we think of as our, as our groups of support, as our, as our savings accounts, as, as these other things as buffers, then they're kind of outside of, of our sense of control. But a parachute mm-hmm. as a metaphor, you got to pull the cord. You got to pack the parachute. You've got to make sure that it's on. You've got, you're the one who's doing all of these things. Right, and which so, is why they wrote that dumb book about what color your parachute is, right? Because that was supposed to make us actually identify with those with 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 parachutes in that kind of very personal, um, self fulfilling kind of way. Um, th- it has turned out to be mauve. an incredibly yeah. fertile. Me- I actually didn't read the book, so I, I suspect I just really um, no, didn't I, represent yeah. it properly. Um, but um, you know, it's like well, who moved my cheese? Those are the any books like that. I, I usually try to avoid. I think it's important for my own mental health to do that. But um, but thinking about about these reliable and unreliable allies, and thinking about um, actually, I think the other side of this story, which is you know which got you thinking about parachutes and took us into another one of our sort of typical um, conversations is the difference between the way people are thinking about things on the East coast and the way that people are thinking about things on the West coast right now, in terms of actually, you know, when do we, when do we decide it's safe to go out? What, what is the world after this, this cautious world, what's going to mean? Um, as, as uh, Andy knows, you know, I, I, I persist in reading New York based um, journalism uh, which teaches me nothing about LA at all, um, and he usefully corrects me um, with LA uh, with the LA Times um, and and LA LA writers, which is is really quite helpful. But it's really a very different. It's a really different, I think, to be dealing uh, like you know what kind of parachute do, you know what kind of parachute do you finesse in a horizontal city? I mean, how far are you going to fall compared to you know a high rise in New York? Well, and and I think and I've never lived in New York, so I am not. I'm I'm from quasi East Coast, but not really East Coast. And people joke that I have an East Coast sensibility. Our guest, I think, is is an East Coaster at some point in his life, maybe if not his his uh, critical years. Um, you've spent a lot of time in the East Coast. One of the things I noticed about moving to Los Angeles was um, I conflated this idea of being alone in loneliness for a long time. Um, Los Angeles is a city. Now there are lots of people who are who have lots of communities and networks and social everything's around them, but Los Angeles as a place is much more uh, alone than the East Coast because of structure. Because it's things are spread for out. It's for sure. And and you're you're in this to to make it to make the dream happen for yourself. Dreams aren't necessarily shared dreams. They're like 
you you left your family behind to go make it happen. The city kind of it it carries that air with it of of your own individual potential, but it also means you're sitting in your car by yourself. Um, thinking about your potential for hours thinking and about hours thinking about your potential it's, it took me a while to understand that being alone in LA is not the same thing as being lonely that my definition of networks and getting to know other people was in a very different state than what I had come from I'm actually midwestern which which you are also from mm-hmm. from from birth um, and so that that is a very shared communal space Everything about that is shared communal. LA was not shared communal, and so I, I after reading that article, which has its has its pluses and minuses to it, it really got me thinking that maybe LA is well suited for something like this, even though nothing is a good space for this to happen. But considering our possibilities of what it means to be separated and to have other ways of being alone but not lonely, is something that we have as a card in our in our back pocket to play. While we're while we're living in Los Angeles, the very you know everything that is our greatest glory is also our greatest consequence. But you can flip that, and our greatest consequence can also be our great glory. Um, and I think f- the very things that people like to say about LA that make it seem you know like a heartless and soulless city, you know, with a lot of glitz and glamour superficially, but nothing much underneath. Um, I won't go to that last part because I'm not sure, you know, what that would mean about illness. But I do think the solipsism of of the of Southern California, that sense of everybody in their own enclosed space, that sense of nobody really sharing hallways or or uh, subways, um, has actually worked, I think, to a certain degree in our in 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 Southern California's favor right now. Although it's still not, you know, these are not happy statistics that we that we get. Um, but I think that that's actually in thinking about what that means in terms of not only how people are going to live after, you know, this first cessation of COVID, like people in New York, what they're not going to be able to spread out, you know, people in Los Angeles, are we going to be, for example, more cognizant of our community around us because we've had to share something in a way that, it, you know, we had to take off our sunglasses and share something together. Um, that will be, I think, a real interesting moment, what kinds of people we become. And we're going to be, I think people are going to be very different depending on how they experienced COVID, which is already playing out very differently. And the two great, what I think of as the two great news generating uh, parts of the country, right? The, the east and left coast, or the right and the left coast, excuse me. But um, but I think this is actually a good time to, to, to actually introduce our guests because now we're talking about how people offer support and we're talking about forms of support that may not seem um, that may not seem typical in terms of face-to-face or, you know, group or communities uh, as we might have constituted them. Either one of us from our little, from the Midwestern backgrounds that we both have. I grew up in a small town. Um, I don't know how small the town you grew up in was, but all the Midwest can feel like a small town. So, mm-hmm. so I think it's time for us to quit uh, talking and, and introduce Jason. Yes. Okay. So it is my pleasure to be introducing uh, Professor Jason T. Siegel, the T is important when you're looking him up on PubMed or Google Scholar, uh, who's a professor (laughs) of psychology in Claremont Graduate University's Division of Behavioral and Organizational Sciences. He co-directs the Institute for Health Psychology and Prevention Science. Uh, He is a Claremont's active citizen. He is involved with both the research side of training lots and lots of future scholars, but he is also involved on the student wellness and well-being side. Um, He is an advocate for mental health all the way, and he is one of these great examples of people that do 
work that's theoretical and translating it into actual practice. So Jason, welcome to the podcast. You are like the perfect guest for this podcast. (laughs) Thank you. I will do my best not to disappoint. Can I add one really cool thing that I had forgotten about you, but I just looked again at your, at your, uh, your faculty web bio. Um, You started off doing communications and radio and broadcasting. Is that correct? What? Yep. That is uh, my background. I went to Brooklyn College, had a fabulous education there in uh, TV radio. You actually can get a bachelor's in TV radio. Um, So, you know, you can watch Melrose Place and get a degree at the time. How can you uh, reject that idea? And then I went out to Los Angeles following the dream, left the family behind. And I did some development working for Fox Television, not news, but television, very different. And I ended up being... uh, had a couple of different roles on a talk show called Jim J and Tammy Faye. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And is that Tammy the Tammy Faye, Faye I'm thinking of? Uh, Tammy Faye Baker. Uh-huh. It is. Uh-huh. Tammy oh. Faye Baker. Yes. And my claim to fame is that she cried on my shoulder. <gasps> Did you ever get the stains meeting. out? She, at that point, was using waterproof mascara. So oh. I was... Uh, clean as a bell. And uh, yeah, so she cried on my shoulder. And if you visit my office, after the show was over on the set, we had like these Warhol paintings of Jim and Tammy, and there were many of them. So they are up in my office to this day, uh, sitting there. And it's really funny how when I guess uh, some students come in, they have no idea who it is. And then every now and then you might get a non-traditional student who's like, is that Tammy Faye on your wall? And I'm like, (laughs) yes, that's Tammy Faye. And uh Fun times abound. So yeah, that, this, that is the background. Wow. Only in Southern California could we be talking to a renowned social psychologist like you and, and then find out that you used to be in TV and radio. It's kind of like every, you know, and, it's kind of like the opposite of New York where every waiter is is trying to break into something. I'm tempted to propose an additional show after this on, on working with Tammy Faye will be the title of it. I don't care that it doesn't fit any of the other things we're talking about. I think this is it's an a opportunity great title. you can't pass up. Yeah, and and I think we need to have a happy hour in your in your office after we've we've gotten through the the social distancing and isolation that we're going through. Jason, I'm going to volunteer you for that. Uh, and Jason, when you tell us how we're doing with this podcast after what you listen to, please be kind. Of course, <laughs> of, of course, for for you to anything. I would say one of the more interesting was just walking into one of the offices and seeing Tammy kneeling behind the couch doing a puppet show and all the head executives <laughs> with salaries I could imagine sitting there watching it. I opened the door, looked in, <laughs> shut the door and just ran down the hallway. Oh, Intrustability, so cool. folks. I have a feeling it was kind of short supply there. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so neat. That's so neat, Jason. So, okay. Your other hat, the one that, that we all know you for better at CGU, uh, is you are, you are the guy that is the big advocate for finding, for, for both finding social support and messaging around health psychology. And I could see how there was a marriage between the the broadcasting and communication side. I mean, you have a graduate degree in communications um, that, that you've got a, you got an understanding of how to integrate one part of your life to another part of your life to make both parts really better. Uh, knowing that and having that background, 
you have been witnessing a lot of the messaging, the the metaphors, the the, the language, the the infographics uh, for how we should be adapting to the the current pandemic. And so I'm curious what it looks like for you as a human being. Like you've got a role outside, you also have a family life, and and you have the communications background, you've got the social psychology background. How are you interpreting this signaling going on right now as both a person and as a scholar? I think it is relatively fascinating on both accounts. And often I am more fearful for people who are suffering with depression and only so much more so nowadays. When someone has depression, what a lot of people don't realize is the way they process information is absolutely different than the way they would process it when they were not depressed. So when you're experiencing depression, you traditionally, and Beck has a great list of cognitive errors, but everything starts becoming very black and white. You start taking everything personally. You've got a great talent for minimizing all the positive and maximizing all the negative. And that, that's just half of them. You overgeneralize. There's a lot of selective abstraction that goes on. And what scares me is I'm not sure how much people on the news are thinking about how the messages are being processed by people who are suffering from depression. And often when you're suffering from depression and anything that is especially self-relevant, it's not all information gets attacked by this depressinogenic schema, but certainly things that are self-relevant. So I am very fearful that when things are seen in black and white, especially with the negative bias that often accompanies depression, People with depression may not see the light at the end of the tunnel. They may have trouble seeing how this might change the entire country for the better. If they lost their job, it's not unlikely that they might be thinking, I will never find work again. So I am actually very worried about it, and I'm particularly worried by the lack of outreach to people who are struggling with mental illness that we are seeing on TV right now. There are comments like, and we have to worry about the mental health. I know Pence's wife was talking about the mental health, but it's one thing to be talking about it. It's something very different to come up with strategic outreach for that population. And unfortunately, it is not being done, at least not to what I am seeing. Jason, can I ask you, those are both um, like great things to start talking about, but I want to ask you first, for the first, for the first part of what you were, your concerns, what would be the appropriate way to make public announcements in a time like this with with that consideration in mind? Uh, I think this is probably a shorter answer than the one about how to do the outreach, but I'm just very I'm very curious because it it, it you know, how does one say what needs to be said? Um understanding that there's going to be as, as far as I can understand if if you believe statistics a significant number of people who are in the audience, who are hearing in the selective way that you describe. Okay, well, there are two different things that need to be done. You have to think about the people who are experiencing depression as well as the potential social supporters of people with depression. And that includes the people who might stigmatize people with depression. So let's start with the direct um 
people with depression. So what has to be understood is because they process information differently, just because you or I, if we're not in a state of depression, perceive an ad as fabulous, as heartful, as useful, that has no necessary bearing on how someone with depression is going to see that message. I just published a paper with a colleague, Dale Berger, who you guys might know, phenomenal sure, human yeah. being, yeah. and two former students. And what we did was we showed a bunch of people a public service announcement that was targeting friends of people with depression. And this said, you know, it's like, oh, we have many different friends. And it basically spoke about how you need to be a friend for people who are suffering from mental illness. And that would seem like a good message, right? If I'm depressed, a lay person might think, well, if you see an ad saying that your friend should be supportive of you, you should feel better that people are looking out for you. And that happened for the non-depressed people who work perfectly. And for about 80% of the depressed people, the ad worked extremely well. But 20% of the respondents actually felt worse as a result of seeing that ad. An as they, ad like they'd be a, a burden to their friends or something? As if it, it was, was a few different things. They felt, um, why do you have to create create ads telling people to be nice to me? It also said, oh, so I shouldn't expect people to be there for me. If you have to tell them to be there for me, are they actually going to be there for me? And there was wow. also language in the ad. Like it started with something along the lines of everyone has friends. And right away, the depressed person felt, mm, I don't have friends. Not me, what right. is wrong with me? So if, and again, that was only 20% of the depressed people, the other 80% had no problem, but one in five of people with depression in the qualitative responses mentioned experiencing negative effect about an ad that was intended to help them. So what this says to me is just, we've got to be strategic. We got to understand that people with depression are going to perceive <clears throat> the ad differently and as a result, we have to pilot test them. We have to test them on people with them without depression. And lo and behold, we have to use science. We cannot just use our gut about what we think would be a, a good mm. ad. We've got to rely on experts, which unfortunately the country seems to be going further and further away from. But just at a minimum, realizing that people with depression process information differently and may see the ad differently might be a good start. What does work? We found some things that work. For example, overheard communication works well. What does that mean? It means not having the person with depression think the ad is targeting them. So what worked really well, we basically did an experimental study. The ad was either they got nothing, they got a direct ad, are you suffering depression? You should know it's an illness, an illness that can be overcome. A lot of really good things. It's not a weakness. Or it was, do you know someone facing depression? You should tell them it's, it's just an illness, one that can be overcome. And that worked gangbusters. The That's direct really ad- interesting. 
Yeah, we, we were pleasant. I mean, we hypothesized it, but nevertheless, when the hypotheses work, you still do the happy dance. Right. The direct, <laughs> well, it sounds the like direct- something my mother would do. It sounds like something my mother – my mother would be the person who would come in and go, you know, a mom can feel really bad when her daughters don't call her every day. I know some moms, <laughs> you know, like the indirect approach. Who knew that my mother was actually yeah. an unnowing pioneer of the process? Yeah, it was going to call angulation. I could yeah. cite her in the next paper. Not please, a problem. Please, she'd be delighted. She <clears throat> likes to, you know, and I hope she's not listening to this right now because moms feel really bad when their daughters talk about them on podcasts too. I know some moms, <laughs> maybe not all moms. Yeah. and I'm sorry though. But, you know. No, no, no. The direct ad was no better than no ad, but the overheard ad worked phenomenally well. Or self-distancing. What one of my uh, incredible students, Sarah Holler, and I just published a paper, and basically we use self-distancing. What would a trusted objective other tell you about seeking help? That worked. So it's all about knowing the and work to an extent. It wasn't the home run the overheard was, but overall it had potential. But the key thing is to know your audience. So Jason, I've got two then issues that come up with our current situations that I'm sure you're quite aware of. The first is that there really hasn't been any targeting um, that of 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 people who being sensitive to to mental illness right now who are I like you'll see something come up in a newspaper article that okay people are dealing with this it's it's more difficult for certain populations but there there certainly isn't something that that is at a at a policy level or at a governmental level or an ad council level or something along those lines is targeting them and we're getting more people we talked to guests last week about like medical workers feeling burnout or um, the people coming out of being in an ICU for two weeks and the the stamp that that leaves on someone for a long time afterward, we're, we're not there yet. We're still in a chaotic space of what is the next emergency that we're responding to. So there are a lot of people that are, are having to figure out a lot of these things on their own. And we don't have this. I mean, we have social distancing. Who am I going to overhear? And I live by myself. So I, I sometimes <laughs> I talk to myself in sock candy. puppets. Yeah, I know. Lorianne and I, Lorianne and I are 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 definitely like a highlight of my week that I get someone to talk to. But otherwise, that is you such know, such a simple over thing to say something. about your life, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, overhearing something means that I've got bigger problems. <laughs> but I, but no, I, this is those were exactly the kinds of questions I actually wanted to, to for Jason to because Jason had also said this tantalizing thing about there's outreach. And, and it reminds me that the, the one thing that I was thinking, I was reading the news, supposedly, you know, we get this, like the good news of the day. And do you realize that all the good news is also about COVID? Like there's somebody doing a craft project that makes, and I get kind of tired of those because I'm a cynic, but, but there was one about how they play uplifting music to people who leave the ICU. And I, Jason, a secret, this, you had a really glamorous background as a person in TV and radio. I had a really glamorous background as a nurse before I actually went back to school and started doing this instead. So the idea of the people that I knew in surgical ICU who would be getting out and then be blasted with the theme song from Rocky, that sounds to me like a death threat. I mean, that's like, that sounded, I'm, you know, and the whole idea was that this was going to be the way that they would be able to cope with having been through this traumatic experience where they've been isolated and they thought they were going to die and they get out. And I know that th- this is all well-meaning. I mean, I think that's the other kind of poignant thing that underpins what you're talking about. Nobody is meaning anyone ill when they make these public service announcements. These are people not thinking them through perhaps, 
but in thinking that they're that as you said without science that they're that they're just their instincts that they you know that the song you know the theme from rocky is really uplifting i bet you somebody that's just been in bed for two weeks practically dying on a respirator is going to want to hear that when they walk out for the first time um so i'm curious about about how one you know how would you kind of engineer this next step this 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 outreach like andy was saying I think what we have to do is one, make sure that mental illness is as destigmatized as possible. And there are a lot of different thoughts on how to do it. One set of studies that we've done building upon other people's work is certainly a key thing is to make sure people know that if someone is suffering from mental illness, and most of my work is on depression or postpartum depression, it is not their fault. And when we see someone in an unfortunate situation, very often we ascribe blame or non-blame. We try to think, is it their fault that they're in that situation? And typically, when we think it was their fault, when we think they're responsible, we feel anger. However, if we feel it is not their fault, we feel a great deal of sympathy. So the first thing we have to do is make it 100% clear that anyone suffering from depression or other forms of mental illness, it is not their fault in any way, shape, or form. The second thing we have to think about is make sure people know this is temporary. We've done a bunch of studies, and what they show is that when you think your loved one's depression is permanent, you feel angrier. And this was a very surprising finding. If you think an acquaintance's depression is permanent, you either feel no additional anger or you actually feel a little bit more sympathetic. But when it's a loved one, there's anger. And part of that, it seems, at least the data starting to suggest this, is that because you're thinking about how it's going to affect you. And there's frustration there about the impact it's going to have on your life. So we got to realize it is indeed temporary. It is certainly not the person's fault. And we've got to really bring that up again and again. Another thing is we have to make sure people realize if someone is suffering from depression, there is something they can do. Sure, you're not a therapist. I'm not a therapist. However, even a text once a day that says, I hope you're doing well, I am here for you, can make a world of difference. Reaching out, letting them know they're loved, letting them know people care about them, that can make a world of difference. And by and large, please, if someone is suffering from depression that you know, do everything you can to get them help. I read a statistic that half the people who kill themselves do so without telling another person. We cannot leave people who are suffering from depression alone. We've got to get them professional help, and that can make a world of difference between them thriving and them possibly not surviving. Here's what worries me now. Right now, we the way that we have for outreach has to actually necessarily take into consideration social distancing. And I know you said, send them a text. You may not be able to see them, but help often means going to somebody's office and, and sitting down and talking with the doctor, you know, with, with the psychiatrist or the psychologist or the MSW uh, for, you know, for a, a way to think through and to, you know, and to, in some sense to alleviate this, this condition, which is, 
temporary, which can be addressed, which is not their fault. But right now, we're all in different houses. We're not allowed to check on people in the same sort of way. A text doesn't always get the answer back that you might that might have the subtlety or the or the um, nuance that you could read between the lines and go, I think there's a problem here. I think that 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 raises a whole lot of interesting um, and uh, challenges about this kind of this particular kind of um, essential communication. This is this is a challenge right now. Absolutely, one thousand percent. And I think the only fortunate thing, and I think this is true for education and mental health, is that this happened during a time when we have never had more technology to bring people closer together in a way socially, even if, if not physically. And I've heard people say that social distance might be the worst term of this all. We have to do physical distancing. And I think between the, and yes, without a doubt, nothing is as good as knocking on the door, going to your friend's house and saying, I know you're not in a good place, but I'm going to sit here all day, you know, and just be here for you. Ignore me if you want to, but we got to do the best we can with the situation. There are online places you could get help through therapy. There are crisis lines you can call. You can Zoom with people, do one-on-one Zooming, and maybe they don't want to see you. So you say, fine, then keep the video off. And I think just the key thing is making that effort. Uh, Coyne did some great work a long time ago on something called the depressive spiral. And what he was talking about is that people with depression start to feel they don't have friends and their friends aren't going to be there for them. So they start pulling back, excessive reassurance seeking, maybe not responding to their friends because their friends don't really like them anyway, so why bother? And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's like, you see, I'm right. My friends stopped calling me. Yeah, they stopped calling because they called 42 times and you never call them back. But the person with depression is not going to see that. So I would say a key thing is instead of understandably thinking about the things that we cannot do, and there's a lot, what can we do? Daily phone calls, emails, Zooms. And I think a great thing that I would recommend is if you have a friend who is struggling, don't stop the communication. Even if they are not getting back to you, that is okay. Even something such as, I am here for you, you don't have to text me back if you don't want to, can do wonders. Because oddly, when when I'm in a state of depression, when that phone would ring, and I'm almost thinking back to when you know you would screen your phone calls and you would hear the messages as they are being left, and a friend would say, hey, I'm just checking in on you, I would feel this, gri- this gripping anxiety, oh my God, do I have to pick up the phone? Do they know I'm here? Are they judging me badly if I don't call them back? But I can't call them back. I don't want to get on the phone. <clears throat> it would actually make things worse. But if you just say, I am here for you, you don't have to get back in touch with me, that's okay. Just know you're not alone. That could be the difference between life and death, essentially. Jason, what is this relationship? So I know that um, it's very common that we are talking about colloquially anxiety, not necessarily in terms of its classification as as a, a mental illness or a mental health uh, disorder. But uh, I know there's a, a strong relationship between anxiety and depression. Could you explain what that is? 
To an extent, most of my work does focus on depression, but I have yet to do a study where there wasn't a high correlation between the two. Um, there are differences in, in just what happens physiological. There, there are differences that happen um, even mentally, but there is certainly an association between those two. Not everyone who is anxious who is depressed, and certainly not everyone who is depressed who is anxious. So there are definitely differences between those two, but just I lack expertise in anxiety. Most of my expertise is in depression. So uh -huh. it's just tough for me to generalize much beyond that. Um, you know, there, there are a bunch of us who still don't like speaking outside their area of expertise, regardless of what people <laughs> in the media do. But then you can't Which be the is, president of the United hey. States for sure. I, you know, what's interesting to me is that I began to feel anxious when you began to, I mean, um, when you began to explain how it feels to hear somebody calling you. And I was thinking about, you know, mental health disorders or, you know, that are, that are circle around or are concentrated in almost overthinking everything, you know, thinking too much about, about a particular situation, not being able to let it go, not being able to, um, to, uh, to, to, to dismiss it, but to actually weave an entire story around a telephone call that you're not picking up. And that feels, I mean, I definitely don't have any expertise. And so therefore I'm not going to offer anything either. But I do think one of the things that um, was a very powerful insight for me years ago when I was a nurse was that when I started dealing with people who did have, you know, because lots of people who come in for all kinds of medical conditions are also people who have, you know, men mental health conditions. And these were not people for some reason in, in, you know, in my, in my sort of, you know, not unthinking way, I had thought that these are people whose thought processes were actually rather slow or possibly muddy. And what I found was that these were people who were thinking rings around me in a certain kind of way. There was, there was, there were answers for everything, or there were, there were, the, there were other questions to ask, or there were other, there were, everything was meaningful in a way that I was not assessing meaning. I couldn't, I couldn't think that meaningfully about everything that was happening within this particular context of our conversation. And um, this idea of assessing meaning to everything, whereas I think a lot of our ways of dealing with anxiety at least or you know or or the kinds of depression that can can be spurred on by for example current events is to realize there's just certain things that we that we can't think through right not to you know not to not to be able to give everything sort of an equal weight and and um and then assess it in as you said in this kind of you know worst case scenario uh kind of way um that feels to me like if it's not the, you know, it can't, I can't, you know, it's not, it's not that the connection is so much. It's just that idea of just never being able to let one's thoughts rest. Yeah. And I worked on a, a theory, geez, for the first 10 years post PhD that uh, I named goal disruption theory. And what that theory looks at is what happens or what predicts whether or not a violation of our expectations would put us in a state of disruption. I, I took that from a, a psychologist, Tolman, from 1930. And wow. what happens when that occurs? And what we found in our research is that a key predictor as to whether or not an expectation violation is going to become problematic is whether or not you feel vulnerable. So, you know, our expectations are violated all day long. I thought there'd be hazelnut coffee. There's no hazelnut coffee. That's not putting <laughs> me into a state of disruption it, on most days. 
But it's when a violation occurs and it leads to us to feel vulnerable, to feel a strong sense of threat. And what the theory says is when you're in that state of psychological disequilibrium, your entire system changes. Uh, Lewin, uh, some people call him the, the father of social psychology, talked about this to an extent as a state of uh, regression or retrogression. But there's a few different things that happen when this occurs. You have, uh, you're not able to function as well. You can't switch back and forth between goals. You become less creative. Your disposition changes, a lower tolerance for uncertainty. And there's others. And all of this occurs because all of a sudden your goal, your your focus becomes getting back to a state of equilibrium, getting back to a state where you don't feel vulnerable. And one of the things that happen, there are five things that we theorized occurs, is changes in processing and perception. And one of those things is a hypervigilance and oversensitivity surroundings and high levels of rumination. So basically what's happening is because you're feeling vulnerable, you're doing this sort of hunting, trying to, you're in like this, this state where you feel like you don't have solid ground. You're uncertain. You're, you're like naked in a lot of ways and you don't feel safe. So you're trying to figure out how to protect yourself. And because of that, you can't stop ruminating. It just keeps circling in your mind over and over and over again because you don't feel safe. And the problem is that all of those processes change at once. So part of that is similar to some symptoms of depression, black and white thinking, a lack of creativity, a lack of cognitive flexibility, and you start to make the direct route to a goal. So in other words, when you're in the greatest need to be able to think clearly, to figure out a path to get back to, to equilibrium, you are in a state of mind where you are least likely to be able to do so. Now that works great when we're being chased by a lion, right? If a lion's chasing us, we we should be thinking nothing of, except getting away from that lion. But when it's a social vulnerability, our health um, in the long term, that becomes very, very different. You know, Lorianne, as, as Jason's talking, it's it's making me think of he, of the exact ar uh, argument to articulate and why the humanities are so important for um, anybody that's experiencing vulnerability or like the idea of burnout, of why medical humanities are used as a countermeasure to, to teach future healthcare workers the humanities so that they understand that vulnerability is a human condition and that you can change your, your expectations of what being vulnerable is like or the, the, the creating different set points so that you can still critically think and be creative and not look at things as black and white. And all the things that the humanities actually set out to do, it almost sounds like social psychology is the linchpin here that relates it to the practice of why it's so important. It does. It's almost like that overheard conversation where you're actually in, in for example, if you were going to talk about the the um you know the the value of 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 literature and liter you know uh in in sort of the training in medical humanities one of the things that literature does is it allows us all to be an overheard conversation right this is not our problem this is anna karenina's problem this is but we're you know so they always talk about empathy and sort of entering in but i i think it would be very interesting to think about you know 
that you know, reading fiction, reading novels, you know, we, we constantly say we read novels and that will make you more empathetic. Well, that may or may not be the case. And I'm, it sounds really kind of transactional to me as an argument for reading literature. But I do think that there's a great argument to be made to say that, you know, direct advice sometimes can't work for all of us. You don't have to be that 20% of the, of the 100% of people of this percentage of people with depression. For all of us, direct advice sometimes just doesn't feel like it works for us when we when we need it. And this is often about, you know, aspects of the human condition that feel insoluble or feel terrifying. And experiencing them sort of sideways as an overheard thing. I mean, this I'm getting you know, like I love this this notion that that Jason's dropped in for us here. This this idea of the of, of overheard advice. Um we could think about literature in that in that way. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm that's something that I'm gonna that's gonna be a little task I assign for myself this week is to think about you know getting away from a very old saw about you know literature makes you a better person. Does it? I'm not sure about that. Literature makes you more empathetic. I don't even know about that, and I don't know that I'd use that as a reason for people to study it. Literature makes you understand what it means to un to 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 listen in on another conversation, um, and and. That to me would be a very, very fruitful avenue to explore. Um, mm, but, yeah, I, but, you, but I also want to ask about COVID as a lion. I mean, now that, if we're going to talk about literature, then we have to talk about metaphor. Um, okay. You used a great one, and you used one that we all know. You know, if you're running away from a lion, you need to be this. You know, all that anxiety is great. The sad thing is, though, you're sitting here looking in front of you. Know, you're looking at tonight's dinner, and you're having that same feeling. But there's no lion anywhere, right? You're 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 thinking about um, the fact that you haven't called your your sister, and it feels like the lion's going to eat you. You can't have this kind of anxiety over those kinds of situations. Or you're getting ready to go to work is not the same as a lion chasing you. Then why do you feel that way? How do you stop? And COVID feels to me like this kind of long drawn out, you know, sort of race across the savanna with a lion that isn't that fast, but isn't, but isn't stopping either. Um, and I think I just took that metaphor, broke it into a lot of million little pieces to make it completely unusable. But I'm curious about, about the, the, the sense of danger that that is very real, like you know, I mean, how many of us are actually going to see a lion? Every single one of us are sitting here in this situation right now. Yeah, and I think what's absolutely key is, you know, for lack of a better term, knowledge is knowing what happens. How does our thinking and our entire system change when we feel we are under threat? And by knowing that, by knowing our thinking gets very black and white, by knowing we depersonalize others, by knowing we start thinking very short term, by knowing we get less cognitively flexible, just an awareness of that is a very important first step. It's very easy if I give you glasses that you put on and all of a sudden the whole environment looks funky or you go to a fun house at a carnival to say, okay, this isn't reality. I just put on these glasses. But you almost have to try to do the same thing with your own mind right now and to really try to step back and say how much of this is rational thought, how much of this is because of my state of mind right now. And I get it. That is very difficult to do. That's why mindfulness, meditation, watching a movie, listening to a great song on the radio, all of those different, reading a book, all of those different things can get us out of our own mind for a little bit to allow a little more 
more rational thought coming in. But it reminds me of the advice I always give people who are experiencing depression. And the first thing I tell them is no major decisions during depression, period. That right now you are not thinking the way you would normally think. So you do not want to make any decisions on yourself. Now, I get it. Some of the decisions we have to make. But if you're in that place, I think this is where you need to be speaking to an objective other. You need to talk to someone else and say, look, here is what I am thinking and here is why. What do you think? Because we're often much better at processing other people's situations than we are our very own situation. So at a minimum, stepping back and saying, and it's hard to do, but if we say, look, our brains are like computer processes and my computer has a virus right now, I can't trust it. That may at a minimum reduce the problematic decisions that people might be making. Oh my gosh. I love, I mean, I hadn't even thought, this will just tell you where my thought processes are, are interrupted. Here for years, I've been saying, I hope my computer doesn't have a virus. I mean, that'll mean that it won't work right. And now we are actually in a virus situation and sometimes we're not working right. It's very, you know, we need to actually, I mean, I, and I think, Jason, one of the things I think, and I I don't know that you'd agree with me or not, but I, I, one of the things I think is so valuable about this conversation is there's, you don't have to be suffering from clinical depression to see the value of what you're talking about right now, because we're in a situation right now where I think situational depression and I think situational concerns and fears and anxieties also require us to think about messaging, also require us to think about reaching out to people. Um, It's as if what you've been describing in in the ways that you have studied and worked on in this, in clinical settings and with testing and with data, um, without doing damage to those insights, they're, they're not limited to that. They're not, you know, this is actually this kind of unprecedented, you know, worldwide situation. This, I, the, the, this condition of pandemic makes a lot of insights that we had thought were perhaps, you know, confined to certain parts of the population or certain places. Um, they, they begin to have, um, without being irresponsible about it, a more general connotation. I agree a a thousand percent. And that's why, um, like, I haven't worked much on the goal disruption theory in a few years. Um, Very simple. When you're starting to go up for tenure, you got to start popping out the pubs that you know are most likely to be accepted versus proposing a brand new theory, which might take a little while. But once the COVID stuff started happening, I started kicking myself and basically saying, you've got to, and I have some pubs on it, but you've got to get it out there for that exact reason that right now, a lot of us are in a state of psychological disequilibrium. And this, I don't see this as being, you know, just people who are depressed, as you are saying, I see this being almost everyone, because everyone's expectations have been violated to a large extent. Um, And we always think about, well, when we ask, well, what expectations do lead to the disequilibrium? Well, first of it, how unexpected is it? Because the more unexpected, less confidence you will have in your ability to predict what's coming in life. This is hugely unexpected. What is the imprint? How many, because of the one violation, how many other expectancies are violated. Well, everything, our job, our our confidence in our job, our ability to make money, our expectancies that we could provide, 
all have been violated. Whether or not we could overcome it and our opinions of our efficacy completely been violated. And one of the things that matters is what of this what is the state of the system when that occurs? You know, you, we could take bad news very differently if we've just been play, uh, done three all-nighters versus if we're sleeping well and it, you're an academic and it's over the summer. The problem is after being in quarantine for a month, most of our psychological states are a bit vulnerable. So in other words, I think the percentage of people who have ex probably experienced a goal disruption and feel vulnerable is extremely high right now and we have to step back and know how our processing is changing as a result. I think we need a workshop on this for our graduate students right now. Um, and not to mention, I mean, I'm, I, I think my faculty colleagues and I'm, I as well, but one of the things that I am hearing, I never thought of because I don't have an expression like goal disruption in my head. This is the conversations that I'm having in town halls weekly with students. Everybody's goal is disrupted. And, and graduate education is a goal-oriented um, activity, I mean, on steroids. And so here we are with this, with, you know, with this conundrum to solve. And secondly, for my friends from Britain who might be listening to this, pubs is publications, not where you wish you could be right now. <laughs> thank you thank you thank you for for clarifying that Laurie. it was and important I, I think, to me because i i wanted to be there and and i don't think it's one goal that's disrupted i think there's so many that we're hit with in this situation one after another so first it's you know you, you don't you don't get to see your friends at the office and then oh you you might not have a job or you might not be able to pay your rent and then you might not be able to to go do your normal grocery shopping like so the goal disruption is over and over and over again so it is not. Uh, th this goes. This goes into a kind of a chronic model of goal disruption, and and they build on mm. each other, which I'd, I'd imagine is its own area that that needs to be explored. So, uh, Jason, I wanted to ask you a parting question. Um, we try to to leave the show on on a note where there's hope uh, for for everything, and and that there's optimism to be had in all of this, because this is a chaotic time, not necessarily a terrible time, even though you have to be honest and say that there are terrible things going on as well, too. Um, while there are terrible things going on, what is positive to you and what are you going to take out of this? Or what do you take out of this on the, on the positive side of things, um, into your work and into your life that this has, this has changed your perspective? I think the key thing is resilience, is that if someone would have said a few months ago, what would happen to society if we were all told we have to stay into our stay in our houses and suddenly you can't buy sanitizer and toilet paper, <clears throat> what would occur? And I think a lot of us would have a very pessimistic view and possibly view chaos and selfishness. And the reality is that's not what's happening by and large. You know, to quote the famous scholar uh, known as Mr. Rogers, misquote probably, but always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. And what I am seeing is humanity at its best. There are healthcare workers risking their lives so other people can live. This is occurring again and again and again. We are absolutely seeing the best of humanity. Are we seeing some negative aspects? Sure. But by and large, people are 
putting themselves and their lives at risk. People are bringing groceries to their neighbors that they maybe haven't talked to in 10 years. People are calling friends they haven't spoken to in decades just to see how they are doing. And I think what this shows is we are closer to each other than we think. We care more about each other than we realize. And I hope that makes people see that we are safer and we are less vulnerable. The virus does show a vulnerability in our in our physical system, but in our emotional system and in our well-being in our community, I think this shows that we are stronger than we ever could have imagined. Oh, here, here. Thank you for that, Jason. I think that was an appropriate way to to round out the show. You have been a pleasure to have on today, um, and Thanks I appreciate so much. You, I appreciate you bringing your expertise. Uh, I appreciate you bringing your humanity and your optimism and your realism to to all of this. I think that we were really enriched by by your voice today. It is my complete and and absolute pl- pleasure to be able to do this. Well, we'll we'll actually organize those workshops soon. Um, and also, I should say on a, on a lighter note, um, it was a pleasure to hear a trained television and radio voice. <laughs> well, I, I was behind the scenes, so this well, is just because I talk a lot. <laughs> well, it was wonderful. I I also think that you talk about one of the things that I really value in people is. Uh, talking about complicated things in straightforward and clear ways um, without taking away their complexities. And that was, I think, something that we really got today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I I appreciate it. And also just to say, I am so glad that you guys are doing this podcast for society, for CGU, for the faculty. I think it is just such a gift that you are giving to so many people, including the phenomenal university that we all love so much. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. I, I would be toasting you because it's five o'clock somewhere. Um, or seven in the morning. Laurie-Anne, Laurie-Anne <laughs> what, what Jason said brought it back to a parachute for me. Um, I essentially heard him say, we all have parachutes that we didn't realize were strapped on our backs and we're seeing how beautiful and effective they are. Uh, and I'm back in my world of metaphors. Oh, well, that was, I think parachute, I think we actually rode that one pretty well. And I think I like the idea of lots of parachutes coming down, right? Like everybody knowing that they're going to land and that they know what to do when they do. And, you know, um, and it reminds me of, you know, we like to end with a recommendation and I would not have said this at the beginning of the show. And it's only because we were talking about parachutes and why I flashed onto this. I don't know. Cause I had a completely different recommendation, but, um, this week, I think as a, as a, as a measure of comfort and because we've actually been in this a long time and we may feel as if we've regressed, the best way to deal with that is to read a beloved book from childhood and, uh, there are youth, and you're saying to yourself, what book has parachutes uh, in childhood? And I would say that the incandescently wonderful Charlotte's Web has parachutes. Mm. All the little baby spiders floating down at the end in a great measure of hope of what happens after we lose Charlotte, who was always, you know, in, in some ways, always um, making these webs that were you know, words of encouragement for Wilbur the pig. Um, it's made me want, you know, see about that. So I am going to actually dig that book out, um, which was a favorite of both mine and my son's. And I think one evening this week, when things settle down a little bit, the thing that I will do, as Jason was saying, read a, you know, listen to a song, uh, watch a movie. 
I'm going to read that book um, and remember what it was like to feel safe and protected in childhood, even when bad things happen. What a nice suggestion. I love that book too, although I don't have it on me. Uh, I like I like that as a challenge though. Find Charlotte's Web uh, and then make a web that says humble over your bed. Or uh, radiant. That was my favorite. Radiant. It also it has the best it has the best last line I think of any work of literature. You know, if first and last lines are really important, the the final sentence of Charlotte's Web is just devastatingly beautiful. And so my challenge is go find it and remember what that line is. All right. Well, I think that's a very worthy challenge, and I'm going to take on Jason's challenge of reaching out to people more than I have been, even though I've not been been. Uh, remiss in, in connecting with people from decades ago, uh, I think the energy to continue that is something that uh, I need to be cognizant of. Dude, so you have I'm 12 chocolate to... bars. You have I 12 do... chocolate bars. You need to I reach out. I mean, come on. Just to drive by, Lorianne. Yeah, we'll I it think in it's your really window. important yeah. for at least 11 of us that you do that. <laughs> I think you should barter the chocolate bars for some Charlotte's Web books. That's all. Trade Lorianne. <laughs> That's all right. right. This works really well. Thank you. Um, and I think we should probably sign off. I don't want to. I'm having so much fun. That's a great episode. Well, uh, as always, thank you for joining us on, on Sharing Air, where we share stories that bring us together in these times of distance and transformation. Until next week. Bye-bye.